This is episode number 37 with CEO of the Luxury Institute and EI expert, Milton Pedraza. Welcome to Ships. My name is Pat McAndrew, and I am a professional actor, speaker, and coach. In every episode, we discuss a message related to the most important vessels in our lives. Thanks for being here today. Now let's set sail. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ships Podcast. We have a very special guest joining us today. His name is Milton Pedraza. Milton is the CEO of the Luxury Institute, an emotionally intelligent expert. Today, the Luxury Institute is the world's most trusted research, training, and elite business solutions partner for luxury and premium goods and services brands. With the largest global network of luxury executives and experts, the Luxury Institute has the ability to provide its clients with high-performance, leading-edge business solutions developed by the best, most successful minds in the industry. Over the last 16 years, the Luxury Institute has served over 1,100 luxury and premium goods and services brands. They have conducted more quantitative and qualitative research with affluent, wealthy, and uber-wealthy consumers than any other entity. This knowledge has led to the development of their significantly proven high-performance emotional intelligence-based education system that dramatically improves brand culture and financial performance. Milton advises and coaches luxury CEOs and advises and serves on the boards of top-tier luxury and premium brands, as well as luxury and premium startups. He is a sought-after speaker worldwide for his practical, innovative, and humanistic insights and recommendations on luxury and high performance, and is the most quoted global luxury industry expert in leading media and publications. Milton is also an authority on customer relationship management and artificial intelligence technologies, analytics, and big data. Prior to founding the Luxury Institute, his successful career at Fortune 100 companies included executive roles at Altria, PepsiCo, Colgate, Citigroup, and Wyndham Worldwide. Milton is a frequent guest speaker at Columbia University and has presented at Harvard. He has been recognized as a top Latin entrepreneur by Stanford Business School. Milton was born in Colombia, raised in the United States, and has lived in several countries. He has conducted business in over a hundred countries and speaks several languages. You are all in for a great episode with Milton today. We talk about the importance of connecting on a human level and specifically Milton's experience working with luxury companies. He talks about how humans are wired to bond together and that we are adding value to society and to the economy through the value of humanity. And that human connection will drive performance in the future. And as technology continues to advance, this is only going to become more and more important. 
So I really hope you enjoy this episode. I think there is a lot of great information in there that you'll be able to take and implement into your own daily lives. So if you like this episode, please feel free to share it, leave a review, comment. I would love to hear from you and love to hear your thoughts. So without further ado, let me introduce Milton Pedraza. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Ships Podcast. Today's guest is Milton Pedraza. Milton, thank you so much for being with us today. Pleasure. I'm very excited to chat with you. We got connected a, a little bit ago. I actually read about the Luxury Institute in the New York Times. And once I was researching your both of your companies, Luxury Institute and EI Expert, I was very inspired by the work that you're doing. And I really feel like your message and the work that you're doing will really resonate with our audience. So I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. So I'm wondering if you could just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and where does your journey in pursuing this path begin? Well, I uh, was a corporate executive for about 20 years and uh, worked in lots of multinationals, went to many different countries around the world, over 120, mostly for business. And you obviously realize the nature of cultures and doing business and uh how people are so different, but they're so alike, and uh, how uh, many of their emotional uh, intelligence uh, drivers are very similar, although they may express themselves in different ways, they have different habits. Uh, when we began the Luxury Institute in 2003, one of the reasons we uh, started the Luxury Institute was because besides wanting to provide research to luxury brands uh, and also consulting, one of the biggest areas of opportunity that people who were affluent, uh, peers, uh, other people in our research, we found that client experience had very good products and very good services, but the actual human connection was lacking. The art and craft of relationship building in the industry had somehow become very, um, let's just say, dull, um, almost non-existent in many categories. So one of the areas that really fascinated me was how can we create client experiences that match the products and services that the companies provide? Because they were all very good. Say you'd buy an airman handbag or you have a wealth advisor or you buy a top-of-the-line automobile. You would love the product, but you would be disappointed at the experience. We wanted to see how we could help luxury brands in goods and services really inspire not perspire, but inspire their sales associates to bring out the humanity, the humanity that's been dulled by education. You know, in schools, we're supposed to, you know, be spoken to, not speak. We're supposed to memorize things, not be creative or innovative. Uh, when we go into corporations, same thing pretty much happens in most corporations. You're, you basically follow the rules, do as you're told. You, you know, you get along that way. And so we wanted to see how we could unleash the power of humanity in the luxury industry, and primarily because in the luxury industry, it's an that has relationships. In Walmart, it's less important. At hmm. Amazon, yeah. it's not even important at all. They call it a relationship, but it's really a series of transactions. Very similar at Walmart. But in the luxury industry, in any category, because it's a high-value product, you can develop a long-term relationship with the client that drives your performance. Stop there. 
Yeah, it really is amazing taking a step back and looking at it and how important building relationships is within the luxury industry. And I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on that with regards to why are relationships and emotional intelligence so critical within the luxury industry specifically? Well, I would say from the neuroscience point of view, humans are wired to connect. Ever since, you know, as soon as we're born, the only way we survive and thrive is that we make connections with our parents, with surroundings, the nurses at the hospital. I'm exaggerating to make the point that humans are wired to bond in order to survive and to thrive. In the luxury industry, which is, most people would argue, many of the products in the luxury, particularly goods industry, are not necessities. They are desires, the best of something, they're coveted, but they're not necessities. So because our products are not a necessity, we need to be even more value-adding than the normal commodity product. And right. one of the ways that you can add value is to inject a human connection, a, an emotional response that not only comes from the product, but from engaging in a very positive experience with the people who are providing the services and the goods. And that brings, I hate to be so romantic, but that brings joy to both the buyer and the seller. Obviously, it brings great financial results. But what it does also is to, it's good for your soul. It's good for your health. So it, this, it's this added value of humanity that luxury brands can afford to, that often they don't, but many are trying now to see how they can inspire because you can't perspire people to being good human beings and serve their clients well with a human connection. You can only inspire them to bring out what is already there but has been suppressed by, the, let's just say, the Industrial Revolution, which treats everyone like a widget in a factory. Uh, yeah. But now we're in the digital era, and uh, there's an opportunity to unleash that energy, that positive energy that makes people feel special, that creates long-term relationships again. And how important would you say is building those relationships in the age of technology? And do you believe that the Luxury Institute is almost, in a sense, leading this movement towards the importance of emotional intelligence and human relationships? And do you believe that it will trickle down into other industries? Well, that's the intent. The intent is that the luxury industry can lead in building client relationships and developing techniques, methodologies for doing that based on your science, based on just sense as well. That as we lead and we demonstrate that, yes, uh, creating human connection, whether it's online or face-to-face, -face, can drive performance. People will buy more. They will convert. People will buy at a larger transaction value. People will buy more often and repurchase and be retained, as we say, customer retention. And very importantly, they often provide the referrals that drive the brand's performance. So... The intent is not to be transactional. The intent is not purely economic, but the outcome is when you create a great human bond, when you develop, when you deliver four elements that we focus on, expertise, is you are an expert in the craft, in the product, in the service that you provide to the client. You're an expert on people. You're an expert on yourself. You're very self-aware and you can self-direct. And then you deliver that expertise with deep empathy, which to us means that you can ask relevant questions 
relevant to the product you're selling, relevant to the human being. You listen not to sell, but to help, to add value, to enhance that human being. You earn trust, which means that you can communicate verbally and non-verbally that you're here to serve the best in that client first and foremost. It's almost like a fiduciary relationship, like your mm -hmm. lawyer, like your doctor have. That helps inspire people to trust you and it helps them to do to conduct commerce with you, to be in a technical sense. And then finally, besides the expertise, the deep empathy, the trustworthiness, generosity. How can I find ways without discounts, without points, without loyalty cards to be generous? Whether it's recommending a doctor because you told me that your mom has a particular ailment and, and one, a member of my family does too, you have to get personal. Uh, or they just came in with their puppy and uh, the puppy's thirsty because it's 90 degrees out and you offered the client water, but you're also offering the puppy some water <laughs> and whatever other yeah. comforts they need. So um, that, those elements are what neuroscientists have distilled for us as part of what we call emotional intelligence and relationship building skills into those four elements that any human being Let's say I'm, I'm, I'm selling, I'm in a call center, I'm uh, in any type of, uh, I'm a wealth advisor, I'm, a, I'm an attorney, I'm an accountant. If I take those four elements and I try to be creative in order to add value for you, my client, performance goes up dramatically. Just that simple. The problem is that it's not executed very often or very consistently. It's, uh, I really like what you're saying about that there's like a simplicity to it, but probably the execution is very difficult for some people who have been very set in their ways. And I'm curious, out of all those four elements, what have you found in your training that is the most difficult one that people seem to struggle with out of those four? Oh, that's a great question. You definitely need to be an expert in your domain to have any credibility, right? To be in the game. So uh, we would say that's a sine qua non, right? In other words, you can have a doctor, for example, who doesn't have a bedside manner, but is the most expert surgeon. He'll put up with his curmudgeon, you know, personality, <laughs> right? So I would say that being an expert in your domain is number one, because even if you're a nasty piece of work, you'll be tolerated by your clients if they need you. However, the in the world where AI and uh, algorithms are diagnosing diseases and prescribing solutions for medical challenges better than the doctors. It is becoming now more important for those emotional elements, the empathy, the trustworthiness, the generosity, those now come to the forefront. So I would say that they matter both. It's like a twin engine uh, jet. I mean, a jet can fly on one engine, but it's not advisable. <laughs> right? It's not yeah, advisable. Yeah. There's a limiting of maneuvering there uh, and energy and power. So you need those two engines, both the, let's call it, expertise in the domain, in the craft that you represent, and in the human connection these days. And you could argue that because of artificial intelligence that used to be preserved for highly intelligent, quote unquote, or smart people, highly educated people who could do math and science, but now computers can, uh, algorithms and, and AI can do better, machine learning can do better. Um, then now you're shifting to what used to be called the soft skills, 
are now the hard skills. And by the mm. way, they're the hard skills because they're very concrete, but they're also hard skills because we've been wired to favor the, um, let's call it STEM, right? Science, technology, engineering, math. And, to, and those were sort of the coveted skills and the, the highly paid skills. There's a guy named Jeff Colvin who wrote a book called Humans Are Underrated, who talks about how these so-called soft skills will be the skills that are now in the, in the age of AI, the most highly favored, the most highly paid, because relationships are going to be the fuel that drive companies' goods and services. Because the part that's a good in the service will be more highly commoditized. Uh, it's really fascinating that as technology is continuing to advance, you would then say that the value of human connections or the value of meaningful relationships is only going to skyrocket as technology continues to progress. Yes, and even in the most, uh, what we see as simple jobs, I don't see it as a simple job, but let's take a massage, right? We work with a massage uh, um, education company, and one of the things we asked was, well, business who makes the most money and so the uh, one of the campus directors said to us well i'll give you an example my kids are uh masseurs and masseuses the ones that make an average a masseur or masseur or masseuse will make 35 to forty thousand dollars a year working 27 hours hard work so you can't work 40 hours like other people do however milton the people who make ninety thousand dollars a year are not necessarily working more hours. They're just better at retaining their clients and making their clients feel special during that, what we would call technical massage, right? It's, it has, uh, a massage can be taught. It has certain elements and components that are physical and you have to, you know, pressure this way and move this way and do that. So that can be taught. She said to me, the ones who make double 90,000 a year because they get huge tips are the ones who have that manner, that human connection, that not just literally human touch, but that emotional touch that they can really make their clients feel special, they can cater to their clients' needs, they're very sensitive to how they, you know, how much pressure they put. And so it's it goes from being a functional job that you would think is primarily functional. Are you a good technical masseur or masseuse or not? Into because you build relationships, you get tips, you get referrals. The same thing is true with the soul cycle um, instructors. They are uh, they, their emotional connection skills beyond their physical, which are very formidable. And by the way, it's a very exhausting job. But their ability to earn more because they get tips and they get gifts at the end of the year and get uh, bonuses is based on their ability to connect as human beings. Yeah, it's I, I I there's so much I'm resonating so much with what you're saying and and the importance of that human connection and sensitivity, kind of having that emotional touch, uh, you know, to use your phrase. And do you think that people are seeking that now more than ever because there's been a lot of research out there that whether it be smartphones or social media are a likely cause to the rise of isolation, anxiety, potentially depression. So do you yes. think it's because of those reasons that people are really looking for that human connection more so now than ever? I think that's one of the major reasons and the research bears that out. Obviously, the more we spent uh, on screens, 
the less time we have for human interaction. Humans, as we said before, they crave that. They need that. Their soul needs that. There's a Harvard study conducted for decades that showed that the people who lived the healthiest uh, were the happiest, were the ones who had deep relationships. But I think there's one more reason that living in the city of New York, I have discovered because I moved out for many years to other countries and other areas that were more rural, uh, smaller cities, and I came back to Manhattan. I think the fact that we have these very densely populated areas and the American, and I would say the world's economies run on densely populated cities. Uh, they are the, the engines that fuel economies. Uh, McKinsey just did a very interesting study on that. Uh, and, you know, super cities and, 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 and fast-growing suburbs like Austin, Texas, not cities like Austin, Texas. So you have the megalopolis uh, like New York and areas in L.A., San Francisco, Dallas, Houston, Miami, South Florida, better said. But the fact that we live in a very densely populated space very often means that we seek to kind of push people off. We're in the subway and, oh, my God, you know, what do I do to keep my little tiny space and my little privacy, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that tends to breed a little bit of isolationist thinking that does drive, unfortunately, uh, this uh, isolation, loneliness. It's amazing the studies that you see across the world, but very much so in the United States, about how people who live in cities are so lonely. So there's a paradox there uh, that uh, while we live in, in, in you know, packed together, that almost creates a desire to almost like, you know, put a hand up and keep your distance. And that can breed isolation too. I'm not a, and I'm not a neuroscientist, but I've read that, uh, you know, some of these cities, like New York is one of the loneliest cities in the world, even though we have so many people we engage with, make eye contact with too on a daily basis. But then the depth, the depth of our relationships is not as high, that as deep, uh, as we would need to survive and thrive as human beings. So I think there's a paradox in there. Um, so I think there's a few reasons why. I also think that um, the individualistic approach of societies, you know, in America, we're all very individualistic. Let's say you go to Korea and they're much more team oriented, right? Mm. And I'm not saying that one is better than the other. In America, we're very individualistic. And that drives sort of a self-focus as opposed to a focus on others. And that might also be a reason. Yeah, it's always something that has kind of baffled me. And like you were saying, in these very densely populated cities, that it, it is so easy to feel lonely. It's so easy to feel like you don't belong or you, that you have a hard time connecting with people. And I think it's exactly what you said, this almost isolationist feeling where we're kind of trying to look for our own personal bubble so often because there's always so many people around that it actually ends up being to our detriment a little bit. Yes, and you just reminded me of something, that I'm getting old. And I read recently an article that as you get older, you don't have as many friendships. Kind of dwindle your friends, your gals and guys get married, um, you move. And so you disconnect from many of the relationships that were your foundation and your enclave when you were young. And so as you age, and obviously when you age, uh, for example, women live longer than men, uh, but people in general are living longer. Some work longer, but many don't. 
many people uh, who are in their 60s have this mentality of retirement. And I was reading recently an article in the Wall Street Journal about how retirement drives isolation. And, how, and so when we think about the aging populations of the world, in the United States, China, prime examples, Europe as well, and we see that people sort of sit at home alone, or they might have contact with a visiting nurse or a, an aide, a health aide, but they are not uh, in a position, whether physically and sometimes mentally or age-wise, to cultivate relationships. And that also is, I think, part of what drives the loneliness of society. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about your other company as well, Emotionally Intelligent Expert. Was it the work that you were doing within the luxury industry that led to the formation of this organization? Or was it just your outside research in general? No, it was really that uh, we recognized that, for example, business to business is a huge you know, industry, mega industry, right? There's all sorts of business to business companies, software companies, other technology companies, all kinds of providers for corporations. And those sales forces also need a way to, um, and also mass markets, obviously, but less in mass market. As I said, Walmart probably doesn't need us and may not want us. They want people to behave (laughs) well, but they don't need you to develop a a deep long-term relationship that drives performance. They have other elements that drive performance, such as price and convenience and uh, location, et cetera. So um, we realized that B2B, uh, and we were getting calls from uh, technology companies that were saying, you know, we would like to have our associates learn these techniques so that they can build long-term relationships. In the B2B uh, space, there's tremendous need for long-term relationships and tremendous competition. And since a lot of technology eventually becomes commoditized because companies copy one another. I mean, look at Android versus iPhones, right? I mean, they're constantly competing for features, but one will adopt the others very easily. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that becomes a little bit of a commodity. And so then the difference is the relationship building. Uh, corporations, uh, let's say, for example, I have a business account at Apple Store. Uh, I wish I had some consistency because I go to different stores. Um, they know me from a database point of view, but there are no people at Apple have a business account. I can honestly say I know well and that know me intimately as a client in the context of my business that can help me and generate ideas. I would buy a lot more, I'm sure. They were looking out for my needs, not algorithmically, not algorithmically, excuse me, but, uh, personally, human to human. So I think there's opportunities, and that's a very small-scale type of business-to-business. When you have multi-million-dollar contracts, billion-dollar contracts on the line, relationship-building skills, the intelligence, the human connection matter tremendously. And I feel like that's only going to become, as we were saying before, even more important. And all your research, I know that you do a lot of research and a lot of speaking on artificial intelligence, on big data, analytics. And so I'm wondering from your perspective, where do you see technology heading? And how can the luxury industry be the leader in this emotional intelligence movement within the business world? Well, we see several trends. And in fact, uh, I am meeting almost daily and having phone calls with pioneers in what we call the decentralized internet or the centralized web. Um, And it basically means that instead of Amazon and 
and Facebook and Google hoarding all your data and it going you don't know where. There's obviously legislation that's coming that's going to protect consumers more and more, give their data portability. That is, that I could download all my data history from Facebook and I can provide it somewhere else or I can just store it in my own personal database. So we see more legal protections coming, uh, California being one, but a lot of states are now, they have legislation uh, in the dockets. Let's see if it moves forward. But Nobody wants a mishmash of state legislation that you have to comply to. Eventually, I think we'll have federal uh, privacy legislation similar to GDPR, or similar to California. That will protect us to a very high degree to uh, know where our data is going, uh, give permission or not to sell our data to third parties, uh, download our data. So you may not have data, but you'll have a lot of control over your data. When that happens, we see that there will be data fiduciaries who will control your data pod for you, if you will. They will help manage. Nobody wants to be a data manager. We have to live our lives. But <laughs> yeah. underneath that, um, I think there will be an ability to have your own database uh, and with good structured data that then you can decide what you want to do with that data, but that you'll need a trusted intermediary and also that personal AI will come to the forefront. In other words, with all my location data, calendar data, Fitbit data, medical data, financial data, I mean, I could keep going. Internet of Things data, uh, you could track me, you know, minute by minute, but that data should belong to me. And then I need a personal AI provider who will analyze that data, use all the machine learning to analyze my personal data and the personal data of all their other clients, and then provide me with recommendations on improving my health, my wealth, my habits, my behaviors. And by the way, it won't all be, always be a trade-off that an algorithm can optimize because I may choose to leave money on the table. Or if I become a billionaire, I may choose to be, give that money away to all the people I love and many, many other people. I'm, maybe I'm not just going to buy you know, jets and yachts and, and uh, homes. So the algorithm needs to know you and make recommendations that are truly personal that get to know what your style, your behavior, I would even say your values and your morals are, so that they can you know, trigger some, hey, Milt, why don't you consider doing this? Or also uh, serendipity, Milton, you've never done this. Why don't you consider doing that? Because I think you have you know, uh, a, a, you know, personality or values or morals that you might consider this whole new world as a, as a new journey, a new adventure, or this type of career. I think that all that personal AI will have to be, it's funny, I'm doing an, a, 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 um, an interview with the New York Times today on what kinds of uh, advisors and services are the wealthy looking for. And I would say that once we have our data, control of our data, mobility of our data, permission-based to our data from us, our permission, not somebody else's, I think we get the personal AI, but we'll also need advisors because Algorithms will never do the job fully. Other human beings who know us intimately, our lawyer, our doctor, but now, you know, your wellness advisor, uh, the education advisor who legally helps you get your kids into college, not like what we've seen recently. <laughs> yeah. But in many, many areas, like we'll see personal trainers who really need qualifications. And by the way, you know, emotional intelligence, but all of those trusted advisors 
the wealthy already have many, like a personal stylist, a lawyer, a wealth advisor. We think that because of uh, uh, this uh, personal AI, these algorithms mining our data, that be an opportunity for all levels of society to have advice. So, for example, the billionaires will still have their wealth advisors and their family offices. The, let's call it merely wealthy, uh, will have uh, their personal bankers, so a lower level of that. And then there will be, for the masses, financial coaches who you may not have a lot of assets, you may not have a lot of income, but they can advise you and help you make trade-offs with your income and help you begin to save, get a 401k. So I think at all different levels of society, you asked about how can luxury help, right? Well, the wealthy have always been, and, and luxury brands have always been pioneers in goods and services and methodologies that have been adopted by the mass market. So Mercedes-Benz uh, and all their pioneering safety technology in the 1980s, 90s, that today is standard on any car. And think of what's coming in terms of right now you have these, quote, options, uh, the safety package. But I think that safety package that today is an option will be pervasive. In fact, I think Europe is requiring that by 2021 or 2022 that all cars have safety options. So my desire and one of my, uh, one of my let's say, favorite things about luxury and wealthy people is that they can fund all of the innovation that eventually gets to all human beings. That it has of most uh, inventions. That's why venture capital and going public in the stock market, it's being funded by wealthy institutions or wealthy individuals. And by wealthy institutions, that even means the pension funds of workers so that uh, we can make progress and that nobody will be left behind. That in the future, if uh, there are personal databases for individuals and personal artificial intelligence, that we're making so much money off the wealthy people that we can subsidize all of the people who don't have the means. And by the way, I was having a fascinating conversation yesterday with a gentleman who's very much into this, you know, space of the decentralized internet. And he said, look, instead of giving people, you know, this, uh, you know, annual income for free, this, you know, payment, you'll pay them for their data. And how will that equalize? Well, it's not going to be perfect, but think about someone who has a certain genetics. It doesn't have to be a disease, but the, the hospitals want to study uh, certain genetics because some people live longer or they get sick less. And they happen to be poor. They happen to not have resources. Like I had you know, my situation when I was a young boy. Maybe they will pay you. That data is so coveted that they will pay you well. So instead of paying uh, people only you know, for doing nothing, as, a, as an income because they would be unemployed, which I don't believe because, as we talked before, there will be many services that require humanity, and we'll see lots of jobs in those areas. But in addition to that, you'll receive income because of your data. And just because you're under-resourced doesn't mean your, your data isn't immensely valuable to medical centers, to uh, geneticists, to companies that are studying, you know, pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies. And so that we may all get paid to some degree or other, not just the rich, because they spend more, but because the data about someone, an individual human being, may be valuable, not because of their expenditures, but because of who they are, where they live, where they came from, their genetics. And so that everyone's data will have some value, and in some cases, paradoxically, 
much more value than a rich person's data because all the medical centers want to have that so they can innovate a new uh, a new solution for a disease, for example. It's incredible to see. I'm, I'm very curious to see where things end up going, even within the next five to 10 years. And I'm wondering, when you speak about all of this, when you speak about the importance of human relationships, the importance of emotional intelligence and where technology is heading, and you were just saying before that in the future, there will still be plenty of services that require humans, require that human connection. What's the biggest backlash that you tend to get? Do you have a lot of skeptics out there that are like, oh, well, no, actually, technology is going to rule over everything, and they don't quite see the value that human relationships has, or rather, they don't place as much of a value on it. Do you ever run into that sort of criticism or, or backlash based on, on your research and, and what you present about? Well, I'm an optimist, so I'm willing to admit that my very optimistic view of the world uh, can sometimes uh, be brought down uh, by reality. Just state that up front. Uh, I can't help being an optimist. I think it's genetic. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I was raised by two very kind and generous women who made me optimistic about the world. So, yes, I think there's a reality check. So, for example, uh, there may be uh, short term. Short term can mean a decade. So, to a human being, that's pretty important and, and can be damaging. Short term dislocation uh, for people. I mean, as it is, the world is in a pretty challenged state in many ways, right? There's a lot of income inequality, which we hate. Uh, but I think that as more data and more human emotional skills are required, I think the biggest challenge is how can government, how can industry help to make the transitions into new, into new industries, into you know, new unforeseen. Think about the internet has created you know, millions of who thought about being a data scientist or a web developer or you know, a content manager? Uh, and there's, you know, I don't know if there's millions, but there's probably a couple of million of those people out there right now. So I think that I'm an optimist because the world always seems to fall forward. I'm not the only one who thinks this. There are many other um, more, you know, I'm trying to think. I think it's, is it uh, Pinker, I think is his name. He's a, a, a psychologist from Harvard who has studied the world. And he keeps talking about how the world falls forward. It doesn't mean we don't fall, but that we, you know, the uh, agricultural revolution created certain, you know, habits, good and bad, for, for man and womankind. Uh, came the industrial revolution, and that had a dislocation effect. Um, and, but then, you know, we evolved into better, and that we just keep, you know, falling forward and, and back up and, getting better. So it's an optimistic view of the world. It will take effort. You know, it's a choice to educate people. It's a choice to, for people to educate themselves. It's a choice for us to develop safety nets for human beings. So all of those are choices that we make as a society, as societies, and that um, can help transition because there will, life is cyclical. Life has a lot of challenges. It will always be challenging. Life ends. Uh, and towards the end of our lives, we need a lot more help than we did when we were in the middle stages. So I think that all of those are choices that are that, uh, both industry, and I think industry today has a much greater role to play. 
uh, and governments, which have always, you know, when they've been at their best, they've always created fairness, innovation, uh, proliferation of good things. Uh, not perfect. And, and sometimes, you know, the world just by nature, there's disasters and things like that we don't control. But whatever controllable factors there are, I'm very optimistic that we will find ways. You know, one of the, one of the great views uh, of life that I have is that I get to engage with affluent, wealthy, and uber-wealthy people. And I find most of those people to be good human beings. I find that most of those people were self-made. They got luck. So had a tremendous amount of skill and that want to see a better world for their children. One of the biggest concerns that wealthy families have is how do I raise good children? How can my children be a force for good in the world? How can the money that my children inherit be used for positive things? So um, maybe call me an optimist, call me Pollyannish, but I still believe that uh, the majority of the world is good. Otherwise, we wouldn't function. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that goes back to what you were saying at the very beginning of our conversation that humans crave connection. We instinctually want the bonds with each other. And that's not as much as technology will continue to advance that I don't see that changing. So I absolutely agree with you on that. Yeah, and I think many people do. There are people who are dissenters. I mean, they're, they're, uh, get, you know, the glass you know, I would even say a quarter full. And they're not wrong factually, but I think you have to balance that with a lot of the positive things that are happening in the world. And I think that uh, there's enough moral compass in our politicians, we don't see it sometimes, in industry and in the wealthy, the people who have power and money, that we will see fairness and equity uh, be the majority of what people do. Uh, and so I, I, I think the data is the oil of our era, the resource, and people should get paid for it or people should be able to control it. And I think that era is coming faster than we think. I mean, if I were to name all the great entrepreneurs, former Google, former Facebook people who are pushing in this new direction, it would amaze all of us. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm optimistic. By the way, when companies hoard data, when up that data that they're collecting about you in coffers in their databases and they just use it to mine it as opposed to when consumers own the data companies tend to hoard it and they tend to violate your privacy as we have seen um, and so it's much better for consumers to own their data because not only will they get privacy they'll achieve privacy but they will also exchange sell donate uh, you know uh, provide all of that data to trusted sellers, trusted brands, so that the brands can really personalize. So I see a future where privacy and personalization sit on the same side, not on opposite sides. And they not only uh, sit on the same side, but there's a synergy that by providing privacy, provide great personalization, greater than anybody could ever have. And that will help create massive economic value. These are not my ideas. I'm just a researcher. But I believe that that is what's coming and that that's why it's unstoppable. Because it's not that, uh, it's not only that a company like Facebook or Google are violating privacy. Yeah, that's bad, but that can be stopped. It's that by hoarding all that data, they are preventing economic progress from taking place. That's the real monopoly power. Uh, and I think even they will see 
that we need to uh, get on the right side of moral and economic clarity. I think there's good people in those companies that will force the issue. Yes, absolutely. Milton, so much of what we talk about on the ship's podcast is very much what we're talking about. And a big reason why I wanted to have you on this show is the importance of genuine, meaningful relationships, whether they're personal or professional within the business world. Given your experience, what would you say is your definition of a genuine, meaningful relationship? I think, number one, it's a relationship that's built on trust. That I understand that you're serving my interest and you understand that I'm serving your interest. That we're not so selfish. Yes, we have self-interest, but that we're also aware that cooperation and collaboration makes one plus one equal three. That's number one. I think the other elements are that uh, even when we disagree, we can do it in a cordial and constructive manner. That we don't have to inflict tough love into everything we do just because we think that that's going to have a more of an impact, that maybe it'll change them faster. Uh, and I think that trying to change people is futile. So I think there's this evolutionary aspect where we can debate constructively, argue constructively, help each other see things that we might not see where we're not engaging in that dialogue, in that constructive dialogue. Trust and then sharing of ideas. By the way, very different ideas, opposite ideas, paradoxical ideas, crazy ideas, but with permission to be safe. Being safe is probably the second element, and that also has to do with trust, but it's beyond that. It's, it's safety, right? You give me a safe environment in which we can have our relationship, whether that's personal or professional. And then I think you can add generosity. You can add little things that make, or big things that make someone feel special, that make someone feel cared for, surprised, serendipity. Uh, and of course, I think in any relationship, uh, you should be skilled at what you do. I'm a parent. I have a 13-year-old. I've tried to become skilled by learning from other parents, by learning from school, by reading, by making errors and, and, and having what I would call self-assessment, self-reflection, so that we can all get better. So I think there's a, a, it's a trust, a safety. We need to be experts at what we do. I mean, we're never going to be, you know, I'm never going to be as expert a driver as a race car driver because that's their, you know, deep area of focus. But I can get better and I can be a good and safe driver and allow other people on the road and not be a jerk, which probably I sometimes am <laughs> when somebody cuts me off, <laughs> but not ever to let it get to road rage. Saying that relationships have elements, I think we could go back to those four elements that the neuroscientists identified for us, the expertise, whatever you're doing, to some level, that you're competent. Empathy, so the questions, the listening, the understanding to help, the trust of serving the interests of another human being, that little, what I would call icing on the cake, the cherry on the cake, which is kindness, little surprises, little things that you add that make it so much more special. And I, and I would say that if you do those elements and you do them creatively with each individual each time, not as a cookie cutter, not robotically, but you use your creativity and unleash it every time you get a chance. Like here I am with you, Patrick. Now, what can I do, right? Then I think uh, the probability is that you're going to get great experiences that even when you fail and you make a mistake, you can have a recovery 
that is a great experience. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Couldn't have, couldn't have said all that better myself. <laughs> thank uh, Milton, thank you so much for joining us on the ship's podcast. I, I really appreciate not only all the work that you're doing, but also your kind and a thoughtful insight when it comes to how humans can better connect and relate to each other in an age where technology is continuing to advance. So I really appreciate all the work that you're doing. Thank you, Patrick. And I really admire and respect what you're doing. And I wish I had had that awareness when I was young. So keep going. Maybe you'll oh. be, uh, when you get older, you'll be so far more advanced than I will ever have been. So thank you for being who you are. Thank you. Oh, thanks. I, I appreciate that. But before we sign off, I'm wondering if you could just share with our listeners where they could find out more information about you and your work. Very simple. It's www.luxuryinstitute.com or luxuryinstitute.com expert.com and you can always put a contact form and, and get in touch with us. We, I can't, I can't say that we ever have not responded to anyone. We always respond to everyone, uh, students, whatever, whatever help you need. And we'd love to hear from you. So thank you. Great. Sounds good. Milton, thank you so much. Thank you. All the best. Milton Pedraza, everybody. There was so much great information in there, not only with regards to where technology is heading, but also in how we could better emphasize human relationships and also the value of human connection as we move forward in the digital age. So thank you, Milton, for joining us on this episode of Ships. If you liked this episode, please feel free to share it with a friend, comment, leave a review. I would really appreciate it. Also, if you have the Anchor app, feel free to call in and leave a voicemail. This voicemail may be released in a future episode, depending on what you say. You also have the opportunity to support this podcast. Supporting this podcast will allow me to continue having inspiring and amazing guests like Milton on the ship's podcast. So feel free to go and support if you can. Thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. I really appreciate you valuing your human relationships and your human connection in today's digital age. I look forward to joining you all in the next episode.